This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Kenyan Wall Street Podcast. My name is Ali Mwakaneno, and I'll be your host today. So with me on the show, I have Dr. Nancy Onyango, who is a director in the Office of Internal Audits and Inspection at the International Monetary Fund. And Dr. Nancy and I are going to talk about gender diversity, specifically global practices around gender diversity, and career advisors on how men and women can scale their career all the way from entry level to the highest positions and what Dr. Nancy will talk about in an upcoming Africa Regional e-conference on women in leadership. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nancy. Thank you for having me. So let's start right on. What do you think constitutes the best global practices when it comes to gender equality in senior leadership? The simple answer is that it should be 50-50. That's the most ideal because that is what is representative of the global population. Women and men are generally on the earth in a split of 50-50. So anything that is not 50-50 representation is skewed. Of the approximately 5 billion people of working age out of the global population, about 5 billion are of working age and that is roughly split between men and women. 80% of the men work, while only 50% of the women work. So globally, we are getting significantly less contribution from the women than we are men. Moreover, of the 50% of the women who work, majority of them are in the informal sector. They are often underpaid, and in many cases, even unpaid. So that is tragic. Just thinking about this from a global perspective in terms of the contribution, research that we've done at the organization I work for, the IMF, shows that countries in the bottom half of the GDP ladder, so to speak, if they just tried to close the gender gap and ranking the countries, if bottom 25%, if they just made an effort to close the gender gap, most of their economies would grow by up to 35%, of which around 7 to 8% of that contribution would be directly attributable to increased productivity due to gender diversity. So this is something that not only makes economic sense at a national level, it would also help the economies, it would also help the citizens as a whole, it would help the countries from a tax perspective, and then it would also help the individual. So that's at a global level. Let me just turn to at an institutional level. Recent studies have shown that organizations that add just one woman to an organization's senior management or board while keeping that senior management team or the board size unchanged is associated with 8 to 13 basis points higher return on their assets does have a direct impact on the return on their assets. There's a lot of clamor for boards to encourage appointment of women. You're seeing a lot of that even in Kenya, it's a global problem. And part of the thinking behind it is because the women's contribution is slightly different. 
it's not so much about women doing things better than men or men doing things better than women you know the combination leads to what we call diversity of thought so you're getting different perspectives on that board from different angles so just as an example women control household budgets and expenditure in most households even if the men are the breadwinners the determinants in terms of how that allocation will be made in terms of food and other groceries cleaning material um labor if they have other employees like domestic workers um schools and expenditure on the children that is influenced to a great extent by the women so the consumption of a lot of the what we call white goods or consumables is determined by women it would help organizations understand women's thinking and how they spend what their priorities are because that would help them determine they design their products and design their markets so organizations that ignore or don't have women speaking at the board or senior management could be missing out on this completely so having different perspectives having different approaches and even a mix of risk appetites creates a more balanced but steady growth which over the long term creates lasting value so men generally are risk takers men are very transactional in terms of their leadership style so they are looking at the performance of an organization normally over a shorter duration perhaps a year perhaps even a quarter in terms of the impact it has on the share price women um they are more risk averse so they don't take risks to the same extent or certainly not as quickly they are more methodical about their analysis and their thinking and they tend to play it a little bit safer i know it's a stereotype saying that but that brings a balance so when you have on a board some people who are risk takers and you have others who are risk averse it balances out and you get a more long lasting effect in terms of the value i think the last thing i'd like to say in terms of the global best practice is stereotypical thinking and prejudices that exist that women are the weaker sex are reinforced by organizational structures and society's thinking so for example leadership is generally at a global level associated with male characteristics so you have things like the big man syndrome or leaders are considered to be tall and and you know have very booming voices those are very male characteristics and so the thinking needs to change at the organizational level to actually recognize that there are different leadership styles um transformational leadership for example servant leadership for example don't necessarily ride on that big man syndrome kind of thing but they can really be influential and make a big difference um where they've been given opportunities women tend to excel actually and you know without going into too much detail just thinking of all the programs and initiatives that exist even in Kenya on the girl child and i know there's a lot of clamor at the moment that the boy child's been forgotten but part of the reason why that clamor is there is because given the opportunities these girls are excelling and it's impressive what they're able to do to empower even their communities at a local level so i think best practice 50-50 let me stop there but i'd say go for 50-50 i like that you've talked about the diversity of thought that comes with gender inclusion in leadership and just to narrow down the discussion studies show that companies in the top quartile of gender diversity especially on the executive teams outperform on profitability while demonstrating superior value creation 
why do you think this is especially important in financial services? Financial services is very competitive. There are many PDs. They are constantly under pressure to perform and continue to perform. And so it's important to have a formula that allows you to continue to maintain that trajectory from a performance perspective. And this is back to the point I made earlier about having even just one woman on a board, bringing diversity of thought brings about the ability to create a maybe even products that talk to continuous growth. Competition requires you to be innovative, continuously bringing new ways of working, productivity, efficiency, new products, how you approach your customers, the way you deal with customers. Um, if you think about the financial services sector, here I'm thinking in particular about banking, where you have the interface between the employees and the customers. Uh, that is such an important portion, whether it's by face-to-face or whether it's the telephone or whether it is through social media and so forth. It's really important that the customer experience is considered to be worthy of the person retaining their business with the financial institution. Women have the ability to communicate, they have empathy, they have understanding, they connect a lot better. And as I said, men are more transactional and usually tend to focus more on the specific transaction at hand, while women look at a situation holistically and get better connection. And many customer service departments will have more women, not necessarily having women in there, but by design, designing the mechanisms, designing the conversations, the type of things, the research around the type of things that connect with consumers, it would be very important to have that kind of guidance at a leadership level, but also at an operational level. So I certainly subscribe to the idea that you must have a balance and mixed contribution coming from both men and women in financial services to maintain a competitive edge. Thank you. Dr. Nancy, when people finish comparison, I think this speaks more from a Kenyan context. They go to entry-level jobs, which represent almost equal portions of both genders. But then as we rise to the upper echelons of career, we find that women are vastly underrepresented. Why do you think this is the case? And in your experience, what are some of the factors that can enable women to succeed and advance to the upper levels of career? Ali, you know, I actually wrote my thesis on the barriers that women face in ascending to CEO positions in Kenya. So I can talk about this for hours. This is very true in many professions as well as in financial services. In fact, in financial services, the numbers I found were even higher at entry level. A career in banking especially is considered prestigious, stable, and respectable enough for even women who will eventually become wives and mothers. You know, it's not engineering or some of the more male-dominated professions that sometimes girls are encouraged or discouraged from pursuing. So banking was seen as respectable, and so many women apply, and many were getting it at entry level. And in fact, if you look at the entry statistics in more recent years, sometimes you have intakes that have more women than they have men. But like you rightly said, as they approach mid-career, these numbers fall to around about 60% men, 40% women. And by the time you're getting to senior management, it has switched to 10% women and probably 90% men. 
And there are several reasons. There are several reasons that brings this about. When I did my study, I categorized these barriers into four different areas. So first of all, there's governmental barriers. Government barriers are barriers that are created at a national or at a macro level that actually do not treat men and women differently. So provide equal opportunity. Sounds like a great thing, but when you have a society that's skewed in terms of its approach to education, the way society treats men and women, and then you have a gender neutral government policy, you then have more men qualifying, more boys qualifying or going through the education system. If you just think about our education system, theoretically, girls and boys have equal opportunity to go to school. But we all know that at a societal level, in rural and even in some urban settings, priority for education is given to the boy child, particularly where resources are limited in a family and they have multiple children, boys and girls, the boys often get opportunities that the girls don't necessarily get. By governments having gender neutral policies, they are in effect creating a barrier for women. So having incentives that can really help affirmative action and really get girls going through the education system, and that's what you're seeing a lot of the girl-child uh, initiatives, that's what they're trying to correct. So that's one category. Another category is at the institutional level. Institutions, sadly, and this is historical, were created by men for men. So the structures that exist in institutions are typically geared towards male behavior and male patterns. Let me just give you an example in financial services and I think in the consulting world where I spent many years working. Marketing and selling is an important part of senior leadership. They have a lot of social events that are work-related. Most of these events are usually in the evening. They're drink cups, sometimes in bars or dinners and so forth, which is fine. And they're assumed to be gender neutral. But you've got this wife who is a mother who's been working all day. She can only give so much time to the evening social over and above what she's given during the day. So often you'll see women going to these socials, making an appearance, staying for the first hour or two, and then going home. And they feel like they've struck a balance and done both. But in reality, the deep discussions, decision-making, the support, the sponsorship that goes on takes place well in the night, quite late in the night when people have had a nice dinner and people are relaxed and they're now maybe even doing shots and so forth and they make decisions. Women are usually not there at that point. It's the same with these days, we have a lot of golf tournaments that are social events and professionals meet, they discuss business on the golf course and so forth. It takes several hours. You know, a round of golf takes four or five hours on a weekday or even on a weekend. And women just don't have the capacity or that time. So those are some of the institutional barriers. You also have what is considered good characteristics to have in the office. So ability to be aggressive, ambitious, working hard, putting in the hours, turning things around quickly, which is difficult for women, as I said, because of the work-life balance issue. They want to work for the working hours and then switch off and go home and focus on the home-related aspects. Men can put in the hours. They have people taking care of the domestic aspects for them. So that's an institutional barrier. There's also just societal norms where we have an expectation of men to lead uh, and we don't have the same of women. And these are all much quite difficult. Women can work to change all this, but most of them will take time. It's hard to change the laws. It's hard to change an institution's way of thinking, 
to change the social structure in a society and so forth. Those are difficult. The last set of barriers, and I think it's the one that women can do something about most significantly, are the individual barriers. The barriers at the person level. This is one aspect that is totally, well, not totally, but to a great extent within their control. And I'll explain that. So at the individual level, the attitude you have, the confidence that you display, the risk-taking, the volunteering, putting your hand up. Uh, Cheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, wrote a book called Lean In, which is putting your hand up, stepping forward, being there to be considered when opportunities and volunteer opportunities come up. Uh, tasks, join task forces, demonstrate that you can make a contribution. Selling yourself, that, that doesn't come easy for many women. Men generally have a much better way of describing what it is they do or can do, even if it's hypothetical. They are very confident. You'll see men in interviews, if they haven't done something, if you're asked a question about, you know, how would you approach a certain situation? Men are a lot more comfortable describing how they would hypothetically approach it. Women, when they haven't done it, they lack the confidence and would just sort of give a very superfluous answer or even skirt around the issue. So what gives you confidence? For me, for example, it's the technical competencies. I invested a lot of time in the technical side because that gave me the confidence to speak about what I know. And I always wanted to be the expert when I was speaking. So I invested a lot of time. That gave me confidence and gave me a different attitude and allowed me to take risks. Each person has the things that work for them. If you're a more reserved person and you're not comfortable making presentations, but you know presentations are a critical part, and a lot of the assessments at leadership level is how you present yourself, how you present ideas. So practice that outside, practice at home, practice in your bathroom, practice with your friends, you know, practice with your confidence in the office that you can trust. Let them be your audience and do the practice so that by the time you're going out to the public, so to speak, to make those presentations, you're very confident you've got feedback you've dealt with, with various aspects that would then help boost your confidence. Look at the way you look. Women take a lot of confidence in when they're looking good. What is it that will make you look good? Is it how you dress? Is it how fit you are? Is it how, how you, know, you speak? So address those things. Because in totality, the full package is what will give you the confidence to allow you to carry forward. Those are some of the tips I would give. I think the final thing is the mindset. You know, the mindset really needs to be positive. I was raised to believe I could do anything I wanted to do. And that mindset has carried me this far. My dad in particular was very encouraging. I was the only girl growing up with boys and I never felt that they were stronger than me or brighter than me. I thought we were just the same. So if you're raising girls, if you have daughters, nieces, sisters, building a positive attitude, which gives them a can-do, I can do this mindset is so important. It sounds very simple, but it needs consistency, consistently encouraging them. It needs patience. It means supporting them and picking them up when they don't do so well, praising them when they do that is one thing everybody can do something about. I hope that's given you some thoughts as to what some of the barriers are and what can be done about it. I love how you talked about how we perceive the qualities of a leader and in most cases 
the qualities of a leader lean towards more masculine features like Paul, deep voice. And I was having a similar conversation yesterday with Mary Romaya from Equity Group. And she said that some of the metrics in which we use in interviews, like listing your achievements, might disenfranchise you. What are some of the things that you have done personally that has helped you navigate around such barriers? First of all, listing achievements is something that we women don't do well. I'll just give you a simple example. So at some point in my career, I wanted to make a career change. And I had worked in the profession I was in, in the consulting world for close to 30 years. So I knew it inside out. And there were so many things I had done in that journey. But I wasn't very good at necessarily talking about the things I had achieved. I had worked in multiple sectors. I'd done a lot of work in the financial services sector, for example. I'd worked with many, many clients in that sector. I used to customize my CV for proposals, for pitching for work. We used to do a lot of customizing. And that's where I would focus on trying to enumerate what it is I had done. But when I was speaking outside or even things like my LinkedIn profile, didn't reflect that. And I actually worked with an executive coach several years ago now, probably coming to about maybe 10 years ago or slightly less. And one of the things they said to me is that your profile doesn't tell the world who you are. It says you work for organization X, all your friends are from that profession or that organization, and you're generally playing it safe. I didn't have a photo, I didn't post, I didn't contribute anything. I was very quiet. That is not saying anything about you. Nobody can glean anything from that about you. And so one of the things that I then did is embarked on rebranding who I was and listing the things that I was doing both inside and outside work. So providing a holistic approach to me as a person. I was doing a lot of voluntary work in the profession I was in. I was working with professional bodies. I had taken leadership roles. I was the first female president of the Institute for Information Systems Auditing and Controls. Kenya chapter, for example, that wasn't on my profile. I was doing mentoring of disadvantaged girls. I was doing charity work. That all wasn't there. Okay, I was talking very much about technical competencies, the degree I had and, you know, that sort of thing. And and I then switched that around and started creating a profile that had a more balanced view about me as a person, what I cared about, what I was passionate about, what I had done with organizations, what impact the work I had done had on citizens or individuals and so forth. The value that was created rather than the technical side of what it is I had done. And, you know, instantly I started getting headhunters and recruitment agencies looking for me. I had had a profile for a while, but they were not necessarily looking for me. I then also started doing research. I did this study that I talked about. I enrolled in doing my PhD and I did this study on women in leadership. And I put that even as a student, when I decided what paper I was writing, I put that on my profile. Those sorts of things generate traffic, generate interest. Because somebody says, mm -hmm, this is a different perspective. This is a technical person, but they've decided to look at leadership from a different perspective. So that has really worked for me. The ability to not quite enumerate, I think enumerate is one thing, but expound on the things that you're listing as things that you have done. What value has that created for society or for your organization? 
or for the citizens. It is a way you can portray it that gives it life more than it does create a list of achievements, a long list of certificates, a long list of certifications or hard statistics. Helpful and sometimes very helpful to get a foot in the door. I can tell you getting into a place like the IMF, for example, that counts. It helps to get a foot in the door. But once you've got a foot in the door to even be heard, you've got to look at it beyond that and actually demonstrate or sell yourself a lot more. This is a very sort of Western style. It doesn't sit well with our African tradition. You're considered to be conceited, maybe showing off. So it's not something that comes naturally for us, but I think it's something that we need to think about. So beyond enumerating your qualifications and your achievements, it's demonstrating the ability to add value. Thank you. You're welcome. I feel like from what you say, there is a personal growth journey and at Kenyan Wall Street, there is this big class that we're launching. And I'm personally curious of what kind of books or what kind of literature you read that might have helped you to grow to this space as you finish up. I mean, over the years that has changed. I started off being such a girl. I read girly books, I read uh, romantic novels, I read uh, a lot of fiction when I was much younger. And for me, that was an escape from real life. It was just helpful to carry me and give me some ideas. I read books that were set in overseas setting. A lot of the books I was reading were set up in settings in Europe or in America. I hadn't lived there. So it kind of transported me to those places. As I grew up and got more into studying degrees and so forth, I got more into the academic world. I read academic books purely for academic purposes, for purposes of fulfillment, for research and so forth, not beyond that. When I started working, particularly in my latter years, as I started climbing the leadership ladders, I realized that I needed to widen my horizons in terms of my just knowledge, just general knowledge about the world topics, topical issues around economies, politics. I totally used to ignore politics before because my experience was very Kenyan in, in understanding politics. I sort of disconnected or I didn't see the relevance of politics in my life. Once I started getting more senior, I appreciated what it meant, how the decisions made by politicians, the leadership, the parties, the manifestos, and the decisions they take can directly influence how you as an organization will, and eventually as an individual will operate. So I started reading a lot more of international magazines, Time magazine, The Economist, for example. So prior to that, I always say this as a joke, prior to that, I used to read, you know, Cosmo, uh, Cosmopolitan, Parents, True Love, those magazines that women like reading. I traded those, I stopped reading those and I started reading Time and Wall Street Journals and uh, posts and even on the internet I started becoming a bit more open-minded as to what articles I would read. And initially I found it quite dull and tedious, but I started connecting the dots. So for the last 10 years I would say that I've really widened my reading I read books, I read self-help books, which I didn't used to read before. I read books on financial management at a personal level. I want to manage my finances. I read material that talks to empowering me, that helped me become a better person, become a better leader. I've read books on appreciation. I've read books that are designed to help give women confidence. Reading one called Rage Becomes. Um, so I widened my readership. When I did my doctorate, I got into reading academic journals and books for academicians. So, you know, 
very interesting, really opens your mind. Right now, I'm reading a book called Invisible Women, Bridging the Gender Data Gap in a World Designed for Men. Fantastic book. It's talking about the data that does not exist. I'll just give you a very quick example. You know, when cars are being designed, you've seen these tests on TV where they have a dummy and they drive a car and they see what impact it has on the body. And they drive at different speeds and they crash into things of different material and so forth. And these are very rigorous studies that are done and have been done for years since they started looking at safety in cars. Do you know that those tests are generally done using an average American male predominantly? They use the 50 percentile midpoint average American male statistics for those dummies. Typically, men are bigger, taller, wider chested, and heavier than women. And so the seat belts that have been designed in cars are generally uh, in size too big, too heavy, too long for women. So, in effect, seat belts are designed for men. The studies didn't include any assessment of how seat belts interact with breasts, for example, and yet it cuts across the breasts. Um, pregnancy, how does the seat belt sit with pregnancy at different stages? How is the seat design? The shape of women's hips are different from men's and the weight is generally lighter. So generally women end up wearing seat belts unsafely. I don't know if you've seen, I've done it myself where you wear a seat belt under your arm or you put it under your pregnancy because you don't want it to hold the stomach. So generally we're wearing them unsafely. Um, the airbags that have been designed are responding to a body that is much heavier. So they are really quite strong. They are very hard. Women are shorter. They need to sit further forward in the seat. They need to reach the pedals. So you have a stronger airbag that is opening up on somebody who is lighter but sitting closer. While the tests are assuming that the person will be slightly further back. Putting all this together, what does that mean? Is that women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured in a car crash and 17 times more likely to die from an accident due to ill-equipped safety gadgets than men are. This is a statistic from this book amazing stuff yeah the eu introduced um a female dummy in 2015 can you imagine all this time we've been working with statistics and they're just using male dummies but this is simply a scaled down version of a man yeah it doesn't factor the hip size the breasts and so forth and even then it's only used in one out of every five tests that are done for men and the woman is put in the passenger seat, so not even in the driver's seat. Generally, uh, most tests like these are assumed men represent the human race. So they use the statistics and the information they get from those studies, and then they assume gender neutrality. I'll give you a more recent example, COVID. You know, with this COVID situation at the moment, they have realized that more men are dying than women. But the statistics and the data and the studies and so forth have been gender neutral to a great extent. They haven't figured out why more men are dying than women. And that's because most of the studies are looking at things. They look at your 
your you know the impact it has on high blood pressure and so forth and underlying illnesses and they're doing more studies on the men who have died so they're making conclusions without understanding actually you know how different is the immunity system of women nobody has done those studies as yet yeah so the world generally thinks of the human race as represented by men it's a great book it talks about um, gaps that have existed and what needs to be corrected so that's one book that i'm really enjoying at the moment that's okay i'm, I'm particularly interested in the underrepresentation of women as a sample in research on a personal level i have interacted with some research and whenever i think the sample size is not representative of the human population as is then that is a fatal flaw in the methodology to begin with but then again that's a pandora box we do not want to open right now absolutely biases exist in, in a lot of data it's not just women you no know, there's a lot of medical tests that are done that are not done on black people for example you know they don't include black people so they don't understand how black people will interact with certain medication or they react and so forth so there's a lot of bias there's a lot of correcting that needs to be undertaken in a lot of studies in science um technology quite a number of things are very biased i guess by the researchers thinking this unconscious biases creeps a lot into studies of course when you have control over a study population at an individual level and you can go back like you said to correct that and say okay this is not representative let me correct it that's great but that's being done normally at an individual level when you're looking at much bigger studies that are being done at national level when you have governments and remember i talked about government barriers earlier when you have governments that are collecting data that predominantly assume the certain things like the head of the household is always assumed to be mr for example it comes from society but it skews the outcome and it skews the results and it skews the conclusions that you arrive at and therefore the decisions that you make so that is something that research needs to it's getting better people are making noise and being more dismissive of studies that are not based on data that that is representative but the typical thinking is let me start with the data i have and usually the data you have has excluded certain people so already your starting point from the get go is skewed as we finish dr nancy um Why do you think it's important for banking professionals to attend the upcoming regional virtual conference for leading women in banking and finance? And what are some of the things that we expect you to talk about in the conference? You know, over the years, one of the things I've done is attended very many conferences and forums like this. And really, it's important for women to connect professionally, meet like-minded people, and create a forum of trust where they can share or ask questions get ideas you know there's this phrase that we talk about a lot the old boys network i'm sure you've heard about it old boys network they exist they are real and they work for men women don't have these old girls networks in the same way that men have so for me these conferences and meetings or forums of this nature 
provide that network those what i'll say old girls let me not say old let me say girls network so that is one important thing it's always good to network you know when kb approached me to speak on this i was very happy to do it i know it's virtual so it's not the same as being in a physical forum but you know i already know many of the speakers and many of the panelists and hopefully many of the participants because i've worked in that environment we've crossed paths several times so it is such a, an important part of why I continue to do what I do and I would encourage anybody to do that. In so far as the session that I'm participating in is concerned, I would encourage people to listen because I'll be sharing tips on how one can broaden one's career in international financial institutions like the organization that I work for. So if you want tips and if you're interested in joining the IMF, the World Bank or other international institutions, I'll give some tips. I look forward to engaging with the audience. Thank you. Perfect. I can't wait to hear from you at the conference. So now we're going to end the podcast at this. To my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. To hear more on what Dr. Nancy has to share on the conference and other things that she hasn't talked about yet, please join the, the conference at africaleadingwomen.com. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day.